God, I'm not here for that. But actually, I get it now. Okay. Oh, great. Is there anything else I want to say? That's it. Okay, it's over to you. Okay, Give over to me. The Profane Temple. The Profane Temple, thank you very much. Um, it was really nice to hear Johnny talk a little bit about Icon, because that's kind of, I guess, where all this started. Um, back when I was, what, what age? In my early 20s? I don't know. Early 20s. Early 20s, we'll say that. And I remember... Um, I was supposed to learn French. I was doing a PhD. It must have been my mid or late 20s, actually. I was supposed to learn French, and uh, I never did. But I had a French tutor who I was trying to learn French with, and we went for a drink one time to the menagerie bar. And we are having a couple of drinks, and I was saying to her, oh, you know, I'd really love to do something in a bar like this where people are able to give voice to their doubts and their unknowing and those parts of themselves that maybe on a daily basis you repress. They come up in your dreams, but then you wake up. Uh, because often we're most awake when we dream because that's where the truth comes. And so sometimes the truth is so powerful that we have to wake ourselves up in order to dream, in order to pretend that everything is fine, in order to pretend that this is who I am and not all of the, the things that come up in the night. And I said, oh, it'd be really nice to do something. It would be music and poetry and art. And uh, she said, oh, why don't you just go up and ask Francie at the bar if you can use his bar for something like that. So I went up to the bar. I asked Francie. Um, and he says, what, what is it like? And I said, I don't know. It's just, uh, it'll just be kind of like art and music. And it'll be a bit weird. But, you know, there's nobody here. It's a Sunday night. We'll bring a few people to the bar. And he said, I, okay. He says, you can, I'll put you in for three weeks' time. And then I had three weeks to try to make something up. And I went round and I picked a few friends who I knew were musicians and artists and storytellers. And we did this night called Apocalypse. And uh, it was all about the idea. An apocalypse is the, an event that happens that utterly ruptures your world and transforms it, something you never imagined. You can predict certain things. And then there are things that happen in your life that you never predicted. You couldn't put into the calendar, whether it's the death of someone you love or the birth of someone or a breakup or a new relationship. These events that happen that we, um, we can't really uh, predict. And so it was all about how apocalypse happens in our lives and how do we kind of be open to those events and uh, be open to the possibilities that they create because they, they change your future and they also change the past. You can be really depressed and unhappy and alone and then you meet somebody and they don't just change the future, but the past feels like an Old Testament prophecy waiting for the meeting of that person. So they also the apocalyptic event also helps you re-understand everything that's gone on before. And at the end, we had about you know 40 or 50 people showed up and so Francie didn't even ask. He just says, okay, I'll put you on next month. And that was the beginning of ICON. And at that time, I, I didn't know what it was about, really. I just had an intuition that we need a desert in the oasis of our lives, um, a place of quietness where we're able to hear something speak that we repress in our daily lives. So that was kind of it. And this was going to be the place where people could do that. And um, tonight, we're going to explore that. Actually, I'm going to be talking with Gladys Ganell. He's a sociologist and has written about Icon, um, what we call transformance art. And so she's uh, an expert in that. And she's very annoying because she never trusts what I say about it. So I do a lot of theory and I talk about what, I, what it is and all the philosophy. She doesn't care. She studied it and she looks at what it does. Um, and uh, so that's going to be an interesting conversation. Um, but 
what I want to do, <laughs> yeah, what I want to do briefly is, you know, cover the basic points of what we did last night and then into tonight. So as I said, the first night, I wanted to define this notion of the death of God. I wanted to give as clear a notion of what it means as possible, not as a poetic term, but as a philosophical term. Then tonight, I want to look at the idea of the wake of God. And then tomorrow, how do we remain faithful to this wake of God? So yesterday, basically, I gave this genealogy. I said that this, basically, the idea that God dies is utterly absurd initially, because God is a necessarily existing eternal being. Either you believe God exists and therefore cannot die, or you believe God does not exist, uh, therefore is not alive and cannot die. So the idea of God dying is a type of absurdity, like a square triangle. But the notion first arises in Judaism with Paul, right? This notion where he says Christ crucified, he talks about God dying. That was a very bizarre idea. And then I talked about how that idea didn't really gain traction for thousands of years. So it didn't gain traction in the early church, early Christian art, not really interested in the crucifixion in a central way. But then with Luther, Luther takes it up and makes it into a theological concept. And then I talked about how the next person was Hegel, who takes the concept and makes it philosophical. And for Hegel, what he basically meant by it, uh, as I mentioned, is he said that basically the world has a type of uh, contradiction built into it. The cosmos has a chaos at its heart. And the death of God is a reflection of that, that the absolute the, the, the core of reality experiences a nothingness, a lack, a death within it. Being and nothingness are intertwined. And he says this is absolute knowledge. When you finally realize this, you, you get to some sort of insight about the nature of reality. It's not that we don't know what ultimate reality is. Ultimate reality doesn't know what it is. Ultimate reality is not at one with itself. And something I touched on but didn't say too much about is that this is connected to freedom. So in philosophy, this is freedom because the fact that the universe is not at one with itself means that there is a certain contingency or randomness built into everything. So it's not that I have free acts. I am freedom. Human beings don't do free things. Human beings are the freedom of the universe. We are the result of the not-at-oneness of the world. Right? Won't get into that in too much detail, but that, that's... <laughs> but, <it's, laughs> but, yeah, this is... Um, see, when Hegel says the end of history, which I mentioned last night, in the 19th century, where, where in, in politics we realize there's no undivided other, no political leader, no individual who has the answer. We're all divided. We're all castrated, right? Um, I mentioned that what comes after the end of history is Nietzsche. And Nietzsche comes in and he says that we deny the death of God. We pretend it hasn't happened. So the existentialists come up and the existentialists say that we are afraid of our freedom. We want someone to tell us the answer. We want something to complete us. We want something to satisfy us. Whether it's the commodity, whether it's love, whatever it is, something that will fix everything and give satisfaction. And for Nietzsche, this is the denial of the death of God. Uh, we are wanting some sort of peace, some sort of utopia. And this causes all sorts of problems. And then I mentioned that psychoanalysis, 
then comes after existentialism as the technology that is designed to help you confront the death of God, which means psychoanalysis is the technology that's designed to help you realize that life is difficult, that it keeps going, there is struggle and there is sacrifice, and that this isn't bad. This is actually where the joy is. This is where the the fun of life is. If we were to get everything we want, we would fall into melancholy. We would fall into a type of living death. And so somehow we need to find a way to affirm the struggles of life. And I also mentioned the notion of the beta element, which is the traumatic elements you have as a child, for example, when there's a too muchness to life, you can't articulate it. Something terrible is happening. It's a beta element. And I talked about the alpha function, which is where the parent takes this chaos of the child into them in a, in a, in a non-anxious way and then speaks it, puts it in the language, sings a nursery rhyme, says something soothing, begins to symbolize the real of the trauma. They alphabetize. They bring the beta element. They make it into something alpha. They alphabetize. So that's yesterday. Now, the reason for all of that is because if this is true, right? Let's just do a big if, right? If, if there is something about antagonism hard-baked into reality, if there is something about dissatisfaction being connected to satisfaction, darkness being connected to light, chaos being connected to cosmos, right? Then we need a structure to help us alphabetize it. That's the beta element. The trauma of life is that we are free, that there is no one who can tell us exactly what to do that we don't know for sure whether we should stay with that person or leave them. And it doesn't matter if we go to someone who reads our palm or uh, we look at the tarot or we pray or we at the back of the, that Bible. Those are the, what was the Bible they put in the hotels? Gideon's. Gideon's. The back of those Gideon's Bibles, that every question has an answer. And there's a little Bible verse to the answers. So you know, you know, uh, you know, am I alone in the universe? I'm sick. What should I do? I can't program the VCR. It's all there, all, all a Bible verse, you know. But the idea is that we are, we have to actually affirm our freedom, and somehow make decisions in what Kierkegaard says in fear and trembling, uh, not knowing what's going to happen, and not being able to find someone to tell us what we should do. This is a traumatic thing. And we need art and music and comedy and poetry and speaking to help us put language to that trauma, to help us symbolize it, to help us embrace it. And Icon, Transformance Art, the work that that we do, is designed to alphabetize that trauma. That's what it is. That's what Icon was. You go in and you confront that part of reality. So very quickly, I want to say that you've got, say, fundamentalist liturgy, right? Fundamentalist liturgy is one where if you're a fundamentalist, you say you believe in the oneness and wholeness of everything, that there is, so it's very New Age as well, there is a, there is a wholeness to the universe, there's this fall from it, and there'll be a return to it, right? Now, the truth is, fundamentalism is not certainty, it's repressed uncertainty. So if you remember last night, I said that for Hegel, the death of God is an historical event. Most of us know it. We deny it, but we know it. 
Just like the difference between someone who's certain of what they believe because they're a kid and they've never encountered someone who thinks differently, and then they encounter someone who thinks differently, and now, if they repress that, if they deny it, then that's, that's fundamentalism. It's not being sure of what you believe. It's being unsure of what you believe and, and repressing that uncertainty, which creates a reaction formation, which then you look incredibly certain. And you get angry with people whenever they disagree with you. You can't tolerate difference. All of this is the symptom of the denial of your freedom. So if you say that a fundamentalist liturgy is a type of repression of the death of God, um, and you, by the way, you notice this within evangelical communities. So many leaders behind closed doors, I know loads of them, will, um, will say that they don't believe half of what they say. And the thing is, the congregation knows that. Everybody knows it. It's an open secret. The point is, they just have to pretend they do. It's an act, as long as you don't say it. Um, I talked to a leader who um, you know, was going, I don't know if I believe in you know, this whole literal resurrection thing. And I was like, yeah, but why are you so freaked out about that? And she was saying, well, if I said that in my church, they'd kick me out. And I was like, well, do you think the other leaders don't think like that? And she was like, I'm sure they do. So like, oh, so it's not having that belief. It's just saying it. That's the problem, right? You can have the belief as long as you hide it and you pretend you have certainty. So what that does is it means the structure is there so that you play the game and everybody can deny that, that thing. In contrast, you look at progressive church communities and liturgies. Um, they don't um, affirm belief necessarily. You can doubt everything. You can not believe. You can believe whatever. It's not important. But you have a liturgical structure that believes on your behalf. You sing songs about certainty and about utopia and heaven. You, there's prayers and there's rituals. It's like the child who you know, believes in Santa Claus and the parent doesn't but the parent gets the enjoyment of the belief because the child believes. You get the enjoyment of the belief that everything is whole and complete because the liturgical structure believes on your behalf. As long as it affirms it in its actions, you can be enlightened and have doubts and questions without ex existentially experiencing those in your being. In contrast, the paratheological liturgy is a liturgy that embodies doubt, complexity, ambiguity, and unknowing in the music, in the art, in the speaking. You enter into that space and you, through the music, begin to encounter those dimensions of your life. And it is not oppressive. It's not destructive. It actually makes you feel freer and lighter as a result. As you speak the truth or as the, that truth of your doubts and unknowing comes to the surface, you find freedom. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You will encounter that truth and that truth will liberate you. So that's in a nutshell what transformance art is trying to do. What the, the, the liturgy that I'm exploring is attempting to do to kind of create that space. There's a story I think captures this well, and it's um, this story of Paddy Englishman, Paddy Irishman, Paddy Scotsman. And they all enter this competition, and the competition is to create a sheep pen uh, to see how many sheep they can fit in it. The person who fits the most sheep wins the competition, right? So this is in Ireland. They like sheep and sheep pens. When I was young, they had a show called One Man and His Dog. There was literally a show where one man would whistle at his dog, and his dog would get the sheep in a pen, right? So this is, that's true. That was our national television show, right? Um, so this is a competition 
and the three guys are working away. So Paddy English guy gets, uh, gets all the wood, gets all the material, kneels it all together, creates a sheep pen that can fit 50 sheep. So that was very good. Then the other Paddy Scotsman, he builds something even bigger, right? It fits, uh, fits 120 sheep. But uh, this Paddy Irishman, this guy Seamus, he's just sitting, getting an Irish tan, right? And uh, not doing any work. And then eventually, about half an hour before the judges are going to look at his work, he picks up four pieces of wood, puts a piece of wood in front of him, piece of wood to either side of him, and one behind him starts to nail it. So he's standing in this square that's about three feet by three feet. And the judges come up, and um, they look at this, and they say, listen, Seamus, that's tiny, that's sheep pen. You wouldn't even get one sheep in that. And Seamus says, oh, he says, I'm not standing in the sheep pen. You are, right? Now, that is the response to secularism. That's the paratheological response to the secular world, right? People look at the temple and they say, you're standing in the sacred. That's the place you go for wholeness and completeness, thinking that everything is going to be great. Everything will somehow uh, resolve itself in some sort of utopic thinking, laughing, going, that's what the temple is. But the response is no. You're the ones who are standing in the sacred. You think that romance will make you whole and complete or commodity satisfaction, always chasing more money and more fame, more this, more that. You don't know this. This is the Nietzschean notion when he says that God is dead. He's talking to people who don't believe in God and yet who act as if there is something that will fix everything. The profane temple is a space outside of the sacred, a space in which we encounter unhappiness. Not where we're free to pursue what will make us happy, but where we are freed from the pursuit of what will make us happy, where we are free from this frenetic desire for certainty, satisfaction, for completeness, for wholeness, and where we somehow make peace with the contradiction that we are, not so that we despair, but so that we can find the satisfaction and dissatisfaction, the gain that is within sacrifice, the beauty that is within the dark, the cosmos within the chaos. So that is, in a nutshell, what I'm trying to do. Now, in Icon, they only ever let me talk for five minutes because they knew I would batter on about philosophy all the time if I was allowed to speak for more. So I want to stop now. I'm going to have some music and then... Gladys is going to come in and we're going to talk practically about what this looks like. How do we create these deserts in the oasis? These are, because this is a political act, by the way. If we can have thousands of these types of communities, tens of thousands of these communities, with hundreds of people in them, people who are able to feel and experience that lack and that loss, who are freed from the frenetic pursuit of something that will bring wholeness and completeness, you will find that that has a real transformation in the economic and political realms. Mm -hmm.